Yeah, so like you're wondering why I'm already up here. Well, it's because I'm going on sabbatical, so I have a lot to say. Oh, that's why. I had it upside down. I am very thankful for this church, thankful for the elders, for the, uh, what they provide for us as pastors. Every five years of service, you get a three-month sabbatical. It's not really a vacation, but it is time uh, to step away from your normal responsibilities, do something else, study, uh, renew, refresh. Uh, as Lloyd mentioned, I'll be going uh, with my family. Uh, we'll be going to, to Beirut, and uh, I'm going to teach um, at the, the Bible college there uh, a two-week intensive on the book of Romans. Two weeks in Romans, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. every day. You can start praying for them. And there is actually a pool um, going on at the office. I think it's still open um, as to how far you think I'll actually get. My, my family, in the meantime, they'll, they'll spend a little bit of time there in Beirut, then they're going to head over to uh, Kurdistan, northern Iraq, to work with Samaritan's Purse at the community center there. I'll join them a little bit later. So I'm just very, very, very thankful um, for that um, opportunity. It'll make sense why I'm up here a little bit earlier uh, than, than normal in just a few moments. You see, we come to the end of our study on the spiritual disciplines today. We have found that spiritual disciplines are those practice practices in which we engage or abstain to grow in grace, to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so over the past several weeks, we've looked at several important disciplines like, you know, Bible, uh, prayer, fasting, silence, solitude, and, and confession. I mean, there are certainly more, as you see on the screen, and I hope that I have whetted your appetite to read about them more than that to pursue them. I have said over and over that these are not things that we do to earn grace or, or to get God's attention, to get God uh, to notice or, or love or like us more. They are simply practices that help us grow spiritually in the grace that we already have in Jesus. Uh, last week, we even took a little live survey to find out how how we were doing, you know, are we reading more? Are we praying more? Have we tried fasting? I thought two out of three wasn't bad. I was encouraged to see that, that many of you um, have started pursuing more intentionally these disciplines to grow closer in your relationship with Christ. So we spend some, uh, as we spend more intentional time with God through these practices, we, we will grow I believe in the two disciplines that I'm going to talk about this morning, namely worship and celebration. You see, as we spend time with God, getting to know Him better, the result cannot help but be worship. And now worship, we, we kind of get that. It comes from that old English word, worship, which speaks of ascribing or proclaiming honor, worth, or value to someone or something. And as we grow in grace, um, for example, through Bible study and, and, and prayer, we get a greater picture of who God is and what he has done, and it, this, this will inevitably result in worship. So again, we typically think of worship, and this is okay, it's most appropriate, that we think of worship as praise, adoration, exaltation, ascribing honor, worth, and value to God. 
We remember that Jesus, as he was finishing a time of observing significant disciplines, prayer, fasting, silence, solitude over a period of 40 days, you remember he said, at the end of that, you shall worship um, the Lord your God. Now, certainly God, or, or Jesus, um, as God, doesn't worship the Father, but he just finished 40 days of spiritual disciplines and then was tempted um, by Satan to worship something other than God. And so Jesus' first words were, worship God only. And so I'm suggesting as we spend time with him, getting a greater picture of who God is and what he has done, it will result in worship. It's interesting. Whenever we get a glimpse of heaven, like in the Bible, let me just take a little aside here. I'm not talking about all that nonsense going on in books and in, in movies today, like heaven is for real. It's just ridiculous. When we get a catch, or when we catch a true glimpse of heaven in the Bible, the person describing the view typically falls on his face in, in worship. We have that great heavenly scene in the book of Revelation where the four living creatures with six wings fly about the throne of God, never ceasing to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and, and who is and who is to come. Now, I suppose that begs, begs a question. Are they worshiping, ascribing honor, worth, and value to God because they've been commanded to? You know, like one day God thought, you know, I think I'll create the four living creatures, weird-looking characters with six wings, so he does it, and they come and, and bow in God's presence and says, what is your bidding, my Lord? And God says, well, here's your job description for all of eternity, day and night, never ceasing, you will proclaim, holy, holy, holy. Do, do, do you got that? Begin. And they exchange glances and say, well, okay, you're the boss. And after the first millennium or two, they get kind of tired of the whole routine, but hey, it's their job. It's, it's, it's why they were created. So they just keep saying it. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Is that it? I, I don't think so. I think they are in the very presence of the most glorious, the most holy being in the universe, and they can't help but ascribe praise and honor and worth and value to him. You see, we, we go on in that great heavenly scene and, and, we, and we read, when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever, in case you didn't get that the first time, and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created and and so the worship just grows and we're just getting started because that's only chapter four then we get to chapter five and the heavenly scene of growing worship 
continues. John, you know, the one who's having this vision, sees, looks and sees a little book in the right hand of, of God who sits on the throne. You know, we know that book, the one that's sealed with seven seals. And, and John weeps because the search is made throughout heaven and no one is found worthy to open the book. But, but an angel comes to him and says, don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. Don't worry about it. He can do it. And John looks, and there is the, in the midst of the throne is a lamb as it had been slain, Jesus Christ. And he stands up, and he, and he takes the book. And when he does, the heavenly worship continues. Those 24 elders get into the mix again and sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood from, uh, or people for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. But we're not even done yet. Then there's this heavenly choir made up of myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels who, who cry out with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and, and blessing. It's unbelievable, the scene of, of worship. And we're still not done. Then we get to every created being in heaven and on earth and, and under the earth and the sea, like pretty much everybody, praising to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And those four living creatures keep saying, amen, amen, holy, holy, holy. And the 24 elders fall down again and worship. You see, because when we get a glimpse of God, the response is inevitably worship. And about this time, I, I can see someone saying, places, everyone. Let's run it from the top again. And they do. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, do you suppose for a moment that everyone in heaven, in this heavenly scene, is acting according to a script? Do you suppose they're only worshiping him because it's required? It's on the job description. Have to do it after all. We're at church. Do you suppose this scene happens over and over because they've seen God? And the only response of his creatures is to worship him who was and who is and who is to come for what he has done. Now, 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 I know that there is more going on in heaven than that. And I know that when we get there, that there will be more to do than this. I, I remember the parable of the talents in, in Matthew chapter 25. And it's one that we quote, actually we misquote quite often. You know, the one that's given some talents, produces some more. And, and then the master comes back and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And that's not actually what it says. What it says is, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your master. You see, the work that we're doing now is just preparing us. It's just prep for what we will do. I believe that heaven will be filled with wonderful, joy-filled, glorious, God-exalting work. You don't have to just float around in a, crowd, a cloud playing a harp, singing praise songs, but that would not be bad. 
Because I am suggesting this morning, as you spend time in these disciplines, reading, praying, fasting, silence, solitude, confession before God, you will get to know him better, and your response will be one of grateful, passionate worship. As Whitney says in his book on this particular topic, God clearly expects us to worship. It is our purpose. And and so one of the reasons that we engage in the disciplines is to grow in our knowledge of God, who he is and what he has gloriously done. And so I, I, I want you to know that God is the most glorious and he is the most holy and and the most joy-filled person in the universe. And if this is so, does, does all that then result in mundane, routine, required worship? Stand up, sit down, open your mouth, go home. I don't think so. Think about this with me for a moment. God is perfectly, supremely, and infinitely holy and happy in himself. By himself. He did not create us out of some lack. Like he was lonely. Or like something was missing. He would have been perfectly and supremely and infinitely happy and holy if you never existed. He created us, you see, to worship and, listen, and thereby share in his joy. You see, I think we misunderstand holiness. We think holy joy, holy joy is an oxymoron. There's no way that you that you can, you, you can have both, you know, kind of like classic glass or sweet sorrow or country music. You are either, <laughs> you are either holy or joyful, certainly not both. In fact, if you are pursuing holiness as a Christian, then you need to just kiss joy goodbye. Everyone knows that Christians are not joyful. Everybody knows that. They're smug, they're pious, they're holy, they're grumpy, they're judgmental, they're unhappy. And besides all that, they don't have any fun. I mean, church isn't fun. You don't believe me? Look around. So then we have this picture of a God who is grumpy, irritable, old man, frustrated with his creation, sitting in the heavens, waiting for us to step out of line so that he can zap us. Because he gets his jollies that way, I guess. That is more like a Greek God than the God of the Bible. If you're, listen carefully, if your vision of God is anything less than a supremely holy, good, and joy-filled God, then your vision is inadequate. John Ortberg, trying to get this concept across, describes it this way in his book. As an exercise, in contrast, imagine for a moment how the opening sentence of, sentences of the Bible might read if God were not a supremely joyful being. Imagine Genesis if God approached his work and, frankly, his life like most of us do. 
the beginning, it was 9 o'clock, so God had to go to work. He filled out a requisition to separate light from darkness. He considered making stars to beautify the nights and, and planets to fill the skies, but thought it sounded like too much work. And besides, thought, God, that's not my job. So he decided to knock off early and call it a day. And he looked at what he had done and said, it'll have to do. On the second day, God separated the waters from the land, and he made all the dry land flat, plain, and functional, so that, behold, the whole earth looked like Idaho. <laughs> he thought about making mountains and valleys and glaciers and jungles and forests, but he decided it wouldn't be worth the effort, and God looked at all he'd done that day and said, it'll have to do. And God made a single pigeon to, <laughs> to fly in the air and a carp to swim in the waters and a cat to creep upon dry ground. And God thought about making millions of other species of all, kind, uh, of all sizes and shapes and colors, but he couldn't drum up any enthusiasm for any other animals. In fact, he wasn't too crazy about the cat. <laughs> I kind of like that's the reason I'm quoting this. It's just for that line. <laughs> so God looked at what he had done and said, it'll have to do. And at the end of the week, God was seriously burned out, so he breathed a big sigh of relief and said, TMIF, thank me, it's Friday. <laughs> you know, the, the, the beginning of Genesis looks nothing like that. Instead, it throbs with the refrain, God said, and it was so. And he took a look around and said, this is really, really good. God is a creative and a good and joyful spirit. And this joy-filled God created us to share in his magnificent joy. Do you know that? The scripture is full of instructions and encouragements, even commands to be filled with joy. Consider, buckle up, Psalm 5, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exalt, may celebrate in, in you. Psalm 16:1. you will make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. If in his presence is fullness of joy, why in the world do we try and find it anywhere else? Uh, Psalm, I've got to calm down. I'm about to, this is about to fall off. So, Psalm 32, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you are upright in heart. Psalm 33, sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the, and he names some instruments, lyre. Sing praises to him with harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Are you beginning to get the idea that God wants us to be filled with joy and to even express that joy? Psalm 92, a song, a song for the Sabbath day. We'll use it for the first day of the week. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night. And, with the, and he names the instruments again, ten-string lute and the harp with resounding music upon the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad. Some of you need to read that. You've made me glad by what you've done. I will sing for joy at the work of your hands. Psalm 98 says basically the same thing. He wants us to shout joyfully, to break 
forth and sing for joy, sing praises to the Lord with those instruments again. And then he said, not only that, all creation is going to join you. The sea roars and all it contains, the world, all who dwell in it. The rivers are going to clap their hands. The mountains sing together for joy. Does this sound like the way that you express worship to God? New Testament, Jesus said in John 15, getting ready to leave, these things have I spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. God, Jesus expects that you would find a full measure of joy in him. Romans 15, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope. Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. We know that. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let's stop right there. It's in the imperative in the Greek. It's a command. Did you ever stop to think that joy, joy is a command? Some of you need to know that. Which means if you don't pursue joy... In the person and work of our triune God, then, listen to me very carefully, you are being disobedient. Say, no, it's just my personality. Well, you're in sin. One author suggested that joylessness may be the number one sin tolerated by the church. Number one sin tolerated. You want me to prove it? When was the last time you saw anyone disciplined for being grumpy? We should. Because I want you to think of the damage to the cause of Christ that has been done because of joyless Christians. God expects us, he even commands us, rejoice. (laughs) Another author, not in the Bible, this is just another author, says it this way. The evil one is pleased with sadness and melancholy because he himself is salad, sad and, and melancholy, and he will be so for all of eternity. And hence, he desires that everyone should be like himself. Wow. So, to be like God is to be holy and happy. And to be like some of you, is to be like the devil, unhappy, joyless. First Peter 1, though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now but believe in him, you greatly, not just a little, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. I mean, so, Mac, you don't even have words for this. Full of glory. Do you understand for just a moment where we are headed When God created the earth, he placed us in a garden where he had proclaimed that everything was really, really good. Now, yeah, it's true. We messed it up. But then he steps in to redeem us. And then we... We're headed somewhere. We get to the very end of time, and we read in Revelation 19, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. You looking forward to a marriage? Uh, not me. Then in 
Chapter 21, we read the description of the new heaven and the new earth. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. See if this is a description of the way you live or if this is a description of joy. It's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. First things have passed away. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. My brothers and sisters, that's where we're going. I don't normally do that, read verse after verse like that, but this week I, I thought I would look up a few verses about joy, and I was overwhelmed by the number. I started typing them in. I had, a, I had pages and pages. I thought, man, i got to cut these out or I'll never get on sabbatical. <laughs> and so I cut like three quarters of them. He is a, listen, he is, do a study. He is a joy-filled God and desires to share his joy with us. And I want to suggest this morning, as we come to the last of our spiritual disciplines, that joy, that joy, that joy comes from worship and celebration of a very, very great God. One author, Lewis Smead, said it this way, to miss out on joy is to miss out on the reason for your existence. Now, now wait just a minute. I thought worship was the reason for my existence. It is. Well, then, I'll worship. Smugly, no joy, because personal joy sounds a little self-serving. It is not, because God intends for us to find and know greatest joy, and he knows that we will find that in him. Ortberg says it this way, joy is at the heart of God's plan for human beings. You believe that? I do. You, you, you see, our problem is we look for joy in all the wrong places. We think we can find joy solely in the gifts that the giver provides, like food and stuff and work and hobbies and sports and sex and money and family and nature, etc., etc. But the truth is we find greatest joy in the one in whom is greatest joy. The source of joy and completeness and happiness and contentment and life. C.S. Lewis said it this way, joy is the serious business of heaven. That's why there's joy in the, the presence of the angel over one sinner who repents. They throw a party. They're saying, welcome to the party. Some of you are looking around going, what party? Further, John Piper's famous tagline is, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I love that. He receives greatest glory when we find greatest joy in him. So then how does that joy come? It comes as we know him and thereby worship him and celebrate. Our God loves when his people worship and celebrate him. It is not the mundane, boring responsibility of God's people. This right worship comes from a right knowledge of him, 
worshiping him for who he is and all his glorious splendor. And we celebrate him for his wondrous, glorious works on our behalf. We thank him and we praise him. Did, did you notice, for example, all the verses that we read spoke about praise and thanksgiving and singing and shouting and rejoicing and, and joy? You see, I think that is both the process of and the result of, the process of and the result of worship. The more that we know God, the more that we celebrate, the more we are satisfied and the more he is glorified. This is why worship and celebration go together. Worship and celebrate. As we know God more, we worship. It's what we were created for. And as we worship, we find great joy and celebrate. At this point, it may sound like worship and celebration are the results of these spiritual disciplines that I've been talking about and not spiritual disciplines themselves. And there is a sense in which that is true. But I also believe, and listen carefully, I also believe that we must choose to worship and celebrate much like we choose to read, pray, and fast. Some of you need to make a decision this morning that I will choose to worship this great God and celebrate him for who he is. And so as I've done each week, here are a few practical thoughts. First, acknowledge that worship and celebration are commands. We are, that, that doesn't mean that there will never be sorrow or grief or mourning. That doesn't mean that. But we are commanded uh, to worship, and we are commanded to rejoice. Make a decision that you will be a worshiping, celebrating person. Second, decide to worship and celebrate today. Today. Yes, like the other disciplines, I believe you must intentionally plan uh, to worship and celebrate. That's going to be number three. But we must remember the words of the psalm and the oft-sung Hit chorus, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This day, not some day in the future when everything is right. Today. So many people cannot wait for some future event, some future time to rejoice and be glad. Can't wait to get to high school, can't wait to get out of high school. Can't wait to get to college. Can't wait to graduate and get a job. Can't wait to get married. Can't wait to have kids. Can't wait till those kids are gone. <laughs> Can't wait to retire. And we go through life looking for the next thing. We think the next thing is going to bring us joy. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Third, set aside intentional times to worship and celebrate. Ortberg, set aside, schedule it. Ortberg says it in this very interesting way. Now listen to this, it's kind of funny. Devote a specific day to acts of celebration so that eventually joy will infuse your entire life. One day a week, eat food you love to eat. I do that seven days a week. Um, listen to music that moves your soul. Play a sport that stretches and challenges you. Read books that refresh your spirit. Wear clothes that make you happy. Surround yourself with beauty. And as you do these things, give thanks to God for his wonderful goodness. Don't forget that part. 
for his wonderful goodness. Reflect on what a gracious God he is to have thought of these gifts. Take the time to experience and savor joy. Then direct your heart uh, toward God so that, you, uh, so that you come to know he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Enjoy the stuff. Savor joy and thank the source. Fourth, it is interesting the number of verses that we looked at earlier, which spoke of praise in the form of music. Did you notice that? Singing, lots of instruments. Here's my point. Choose to worship and celebrate with hymns and songs of praise. I am convinced that music is the language of the soul. Said it before, you will not go this afternoon and be thinking about what I've my three-point sermon. It's a little disappointing that you don't, but I know you don't. You go humming the songs that we sing. Intentionally choose a steady diet of praise and worship music instead of the very self-focused stuff on most radio stations and iTunes. Put on worship music. Kneel before the Lord our God, our maker, and worship him. Fifth and last, make sure that worship is in spirit and in truth. You see, these are the words of Jesus to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. To worship, I'm not going to, very quickly, to worship in spirit means that it must come from the heart. It must spring from within. This is the problem that God had with the Israelites through the prophet Isaiah. He said, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God doesn't just want your lips. He wants your heart. Give it to him. To worship in truth means to go beyond mere sentimentality. We worship in truth. We worship that which is true. We make sure the songs that we're listening to, the, the, our thoughts about God are true. We worship the God of the Bible, not the God we've made up. So, we have talked about a number of disciplines. We have talked about them primarily as a personal, private experience. Bible, prayer, fasting, silence, solitude, confession, worship, celebration. But each time that I put the definition on the screen over the last few weeks, I've always added that disciplines have a corporate expression as well. For example, we study the Bible together. We pray together. There have been times of corporate fasts, even national fasts. We see those throughout Scripture and history. Silence and solitude can actually even be experienced in corporate settings. We did that this week at our elder meeting as we gathered together in silence, just praying and listening to the Lord. And while we confession, while we primarily confess to God, James tells us to confess our sins to one another. Well, this brings us to worship and celebration. Private, yes, and corporate. Every author made a point of the great value of corporate worship. Corporate worship. Things happen in here as we worship together that are unusual. 
That's why we sang two songs and then I preached so that now, as a body, we can worship and celebrate our great God, who He is and what He has done together. So let's stand to our feet and do that. Father, not only through this morning but through all of these disciplines that we've talked about, we have a decision to make because these are activities in which we engage or abstain. And we, <coughs> we've got to decide, am I going to do it? Recognizing that the end result is to know you better and to be more like Christ, to grow in grace. So I pray as we worship and celebrate who you are and what you've done, that our hearts will be encouraged. In Christ's name, amen.